This is the Doctor Who Podcast, and you are most welcome. In this episode of the Doctor Who Podcast, we'll be talking about the next Doctor... No, next companion... No, the next showrunner... Well, listeners, indeed, you did hear a right. We have a familiar but uh, vaguely distant voice back in the camper van today. Welcome back, Tom. Hello. Hello. I like what you've done with the place. Nice Nice cushions, liking the fridge full of Guinness. This is always good. It is so good to have you back. And and so, so rumors of you not being around are false, as always. We love to have you whenever we can. I do miss the Doctor Who podcast. Um, and I will. I'm. I'm. One of my resolutions for 2014 is to be here a bit more often because some people listen to the uh, watch television and and talk back to it. Other people listen to the radio and shout at it. I listen to podcasts and and join in the conversation. So um, yes, I will try. Uh, 2014, I will try and be here a bit more often because there's stuff to talk about. In fact, hang on, Stephen, you're 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 a massive cosplayer. Sorry, I forgot to say hello, Stephen. <laughs> hello, Tom. Hello, Michelle. Hi, I'm here. We 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 let Tom we let Tom back in the camper van, and he does a monologue. I mean, we knew this was going to happen. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Yeah, it's monolithic monologue. But hang on, right? Hang on, hang on, hang on. Right. In fact, you, you two are both like proper full-on Doctor Who fans, and I know you've discussed this before. But have you started constructing your your twelfth Doctor costumes yet? <laughs> uh, I have. Okay, what have you bought? I've got a lovely pair of Loke boots. Whew, nice, and, nice. Uh, okay. And a, uh, uh, I've got the uh, the cardigan. Uh, the uh, uh, I can't remember the the name of the company that makes it now off the top of my head. Anyway, I have the cardigan. Yes. Well, this is still, this is still good. If, if, Michelle, do you ever like do, do you ever like femdoc cosplay? Do you ever do, do you ever do, get do costumes? I uh, you know not since I was a youth. Sadly, my talent didn't develop in that direction. I did once though as a teenager win a costume contest at a Doctor Who fan club. However, Ooh. however, uh, it was by being dressed up as a killer tomato. So. I, that was that was <laughs> <laughs> okay. That was probably a good time to end that uh, that pathway of my fandom. You know, someday, inevitably, Stephen Moffat is going to have to lay down the reins of Doctor Who, and we've kind mm-hmm. of set aside this this episode of the Doctor Who podcast to speculate a little bit about his ultimate replacement. We don't know when that'll be, but we know it'll have to happen at some point. So so we've got uh, kind of a list of names that we've brought to speculate about who the next showrunner will be. But we before we bring up the names, I want to ask you guys, because I, I think there's some um, ambiguity out there, just what is a showrunner? It is sort of a, a bit of a, a nebulous, uh, a nebulous thing uh, for I think for most viewers because it's not a, it's not really a producer, but it is a producer. Uh, so there is that 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 aspect of being in charge of making sure that um, you know that the, that the wheels are turning, that the uh, the train is in motion, but also sort of the 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 overall vision of the show really and how that comes together as far as directors and writers and things like that and sort of directing the motion of the show is is how i understand at least the show a, a showrunner you know literally running running the the story aspect and the direction of the show 
the way I think about it is that back in the day, or and, and still for a lot of TV shows, there would always be a, a writer, um, so the person whose idea it is and who's, who's put the stuff on paper. The executive producer... So the person who fi- who signs off on everything and looks over looks over the whole production and the script editor. Now, for a lot of Doctor Who history, um, again, I, I, I hope I'm not being patronising, but you know, I, I like I like people telling me things in simple terms. Um, so for a lot of, uh, of of old school Doctor Who history, that it was always about the script editor, the writer, and the, and the producer. So when we think of relationships like um, Terence Dix and uh, Barry Letts, or you think of relationships like Eric Sayward and John Nathan Turner, you've got there the relationship between the script, the writer, stroke script editor, and the executive producer. So when we think of a showrunner in the in the terms that we're talking about now those two roles or those three roles um writer script editor and executive producer are collapsed into one person uh, and, the, and the absolute result of that is as Stephen, as, as you're just saying Stephen, um means that this one person guides the overall tone of the show now what's interesting in tv in british tv terms is that this is a relatively new idea Uh, it's been happening in the u.s for a good long while but in the uk it is in fact doctor who that in 2005 that introduces this concept to british tv you know people hadn't had it before perhaps that's part uh, of russell t uh, russell t davies gift to the show because it, it's innovative on a number of fronts. It's it, it sort of remediates ideas on, on a couple of other fronts as well. Which which is really an extraordinary concept, I think, and I, and I agree with what both of you have said. But it's an amazing ask to have one person. The, the thing that strikes me is they have to be both this creative artist, this visionary who can foresee the future of the show and, and have those writing talents and that creative side. Uh, and at the same time, they have to be you know, the operational, uh, by the numbers, get things done on time, get things submitted on time, you know, hire the right people, fire the right people if necessary. Um, Well, I mean, it it doesn't, all that responsibility doesn't squarely fall on Moffat's shoulders. And that's why he always has an exec producer, you know. There is usually a a script editor these days as well, but that person doesn't get as much, um, doesn't get as much uh, face time. I mean, Brian Minchin, who is now the exec producer, um, for series eight was the script editor um, on Doctor Who um, a few years ago uh, and so he's really the person who who is is there to keep Moffat in line and to keep Moffat mm-hmm. on budget on mm-hmm. time and, and mm-hmm. to really ride him to make sure that uh, his scripts are getting in on time and things like that so but I do think that it's that visionary thing and, and this is in Doctor Who in a post um, Buffy post Joss Whedon universe right so there were showrunners in the past but none quite like like Joss, um, the way that he had this entire vision for for Buffy and, and Angel, and and he hired all the writers, and the way that it's always worked in American TV was there's a there's sort of a head writer and a and a writers room, and you'd sort of break the stories and and break the story the plots over the season, and then they'd break off, and 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 so specific writers would go and and write those, but you know, uh, but Joss Whedon did it. He hired writers and he wrote and hired writers. He went, I want you to write this episode. I want you to write that episode. And they would just go off and do them. And he would make sure that it followed along with his master vision. And that's, that's exactly what Moffat has to do now. And, uh, it's a tough, it is a tough job, you know, because you've got to wrangle, wrangling the writers is the hardest part, you know? What an amazing transition to go from being, oftentimes these folks begin as writers and have their, their, roots really of the writing profession, which I tend to think of as a fairly solitary pursuit, 
uh, and a fairly, you know, something that's happening in your head. And then to go to be the person who not only has to do that, but has to, to guide and, and mentor and select other writers. And on a show like Doctor Who, which is perhaps unique, be the public face of the program to a large extent. Uh, you know, there's an awful lot of public relation and media relation and, and, and exchange with the fans and stuff that this person has to do. I, this got to be one of the hardest jobs in the world, I think. You know, I think I agree with you. Um, it's interesting, Stephen, you were talking about doing Doctor Who in a post-Buffy universe. That's, that, that's, a, that's a really good way of thinking about it. But I also think about doing Doctor Who in a hyper-mediated universe. When I say hyper-mediated, once upon a time, Doctor Who was books and TV show, and that was it. Uh, and the expectations of fans, and uh, well, so, so we're all Doctor Who fans. In fact, and if, if you're listening to this, you have to be a hardcore Doctor Who fan. You've got you, you've got these people with very active imaginations who fill in the gaps. Um, you know, it can be argued that one of the ways that the uh, that the show survived um, after its cancellation and after the TV movie up until 2005 was because it's because of its its loyal coterie of fans who continue to imagine the show. But you know, that's that's a whole different that's a whole different podcast. What's interesting now is that you, you, the showrunner, with all these responsibilities, has to has to conceive of Doctor Who not just on TV, but in co- in comic strips, in uh, in magazine form, in video game form, in book form, in podcast form, in YouTube form. So, it's uh, to, to me, I think it becomes even more important that there is a single guiding vision. So, so, so thinking about that, thinking about this, that that, that the that this person has to have this this overriding vision so they have to be um, a voice for the show uh, to the media uh, a voice and, and a face to the show to the media mm. that they have to um, really be the person who is responsible for the overall vision of each series and how it how it progresses and and uh, and everything um, as well as being in charge of make, of, of getting top talent to write and direct the show let's let's think about it who who do we feel um, would be a suitable uh, would be some suitable replacements for Stephen Moffat, and this is this is of course assuming, um, and we can get into this at some point that we all feel that you know Moffat is actually doing an adequate job, which I personally do, and we'll we'll argue to the end. But um, who do we feel who do we feel are some suitable um, some suitable people to step into those those massive shoes? All right, so here's the thing then. I've got to I've got to say immediately. I know this guy's probably not. I'm not sure he's on the list, but definitely not Neil Gaiman. Not Ooh. Neil Gaiman. <laughs> I think I think I think I sense a fight brewing already. <laughs> I'm just slightly concerned about the lack of stylistic consistency between his two episodes. If I'm totally honest, so I'm not sure how he would pull off any kind of consistency across the season. Um, but let's not do that. If that's another podcast, fab. I like his hair. I like his writing. I, I think I think talking to Neil Gaiman is is interesting. Um, um, I I agree. There is the concern about the 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 lack of consistency between his two episodes, and I think that that more has to do with, um, with. Uh, with Moffat uh, than, it, than it has to do with, with Neil Gaiman. Um, I think Neil Gaiman is, a, is an interesting choice only because, um, well, not only because, for, for, for a couple of reasons. One, he's a huge fan of the show, and uh, he, he's a lifelong Doctor Who fan. Uh, and, and in that... And and we've gotten that twice so far, and, it, and I would like to see that continue. Um, mm. and, uh, and he... His his works uh, his his out his works outside of Doctor Who uh, I think are fantastic. He creates these really surreal, Phenomenal. wonderful wonderful worlds, and I'd like to see what it would be like if he 
had some sort of a little bit of uh, free reign and he wasn't uh, constrained by Stephen Moffat and what didn't have to have to deal with that aspect of it and was actually in control of things what sort of uh, what sort of world he would actually create for Doctor Who for a season or two uh, I don't think that he's the perfect choice but I, I think it's an interesting choice well as, as I say my, my thing with Neil Gaiman is no not him <laughs> <laughs> I, I love a lot of what he does, but Doctor Who fans, I th- despite the fact we're in the show that talks about change, um, metamorphosis, uh, and visiting strange new, I was going to say strange new worlds, um, different times and new and different places, the, I think I get the feeling Doctor Who fans are essentially quite conservative, um, and the sort of wildness that exists within Neil Gaiman would be would be difficult for us. General, for us, I can't speak for the entire fandom, but I love the imagination. I love. How I love how different his two stories are. Um, the, the reinvention of the Cybermen is a real, active, physical, moving, fast force. Fantastic. But I'm not sure that... Uh, on, on the basis of, of the stuff of his I've read, which I've loved, and the Doctor Who episodes, I, I think that wildness might just upset and confuse people. But then again, what, what do I know? I, mean, I, I come from the 1970s. I'm into that kind of Doctor Who. It, it could be exactly right for the, two, for the 21st century. I'd almost like to see people get a little more upset and confused. I, I, you know, I, everyone... Doctor Who should never follow some sort of status quo. It should continue to evolve and change and and be whatever it wants to be at the time because I think that's what's great about the show. Well, I I would also hesitate a little bit with Neil Gaiman, partly on a practical note. He really hasn't done that much producing yet. He's got a few credits to his name, but but the the monster that is Doctor Who that we've been talking about, I think would uh, take someone that has a little more background um and i you know there's some interesting names out there i'll, I'll throw one in not necessarily because he would be i gosh to be honest i don't know who would be my first choice i'd have to know these people a little better than i do but one of the names i've heard thrown around is chris chibnall uh chris chibnall who uh, wrote you know several episodes of doctor who uh including things like dinosaurs on a spaceship and cold blood and the hungry hungry earth pond life and and the little short ps that where rory's uh, uh, Rory's son comes back Rory and Amy's child comes back to Rory's dad to tell him what happened to them so he has some Doctor Who experience he is actually a lifelong longtime fan I think he was even involved in the the, the Doctor Who Appreciation Society back in the day but uh, he ha- he now has extensive producing credits as well including uh, the, the much talked about recent uh, Broadchurch series that, that starred David Tennant and Arthur Darville and, um, and is now moving on to an American production here in this country, but which he's still uh, producing. Actually, he was executive producer, certainly, on Broadchurch. He's got a long list of of, uh, experience and and credits to his name, so I could see why people might mention him. Yeah, you know, I think think Chibbers is, the old Chibbers, Chris Chibnall, is great with the... uh you know, with Broadchurch and with the uh, Law and Order UK, but his his his, his sci-fi work is is not awesome. I haven't really liked much that he's written for Doctor Who. Um, uh, so uh, I, I think Dinosaurs on a, he wrote Dinosaurs on a Spaceship, correct? That's the yeah, only he, he did. It's the only story he's written that I actually enjoyed. Everything else I've found really sort of boring and procedural, which is what he's good at. Um, you know, um, and also um, and also he uh, he produced uh torchwood he was one, yes. wasn't either show, he was the showrunner on torchwood which is fine you know um and uh i like torchwood enough but i just he'd probably be at the bottom of my list just from his past work that he's done on doctor who that i just simply haven't enjoyed i don't want to see a uh, voiceover in every single episode for for 
three seasons. So, uh, which is what he tends to do. But then, but, but then what we've got, but then what you've got with someone like Chris Chibnall is someone who's worked through. Uh, let me get this right. Life on Mars, um, as you say, Torchwood. Okay, let's be fair. Cyberwoman, difficult. Yeah. <laughs> difficult to watch that. Difficult to watch Cyberwoman. Um, but then also Doctor Who. I quite liked Hungry Earth. I, I quite liked 42. I liked all those shows. Um, and what I'm thinking is, if here is someone that's grown with the show um, rather than has an awful lot of experience doing something completely other and then sort of parachutes in. So I, I understand what you're saying. If, you, if you're not a fan of the, of the way he's, he's written lately, I can see that because, you know, it's, it's purely subjective. But... What I like about Chibnall is the fact that he's he's grown with the show. I mean, my, my favourite shows over the last oh, let's think eight eight ten years have been Life on Mars, and, and so, so what I'm seeing is someone building their experience um, in in good contemporary television, and I think this is this is the key to it. Occasionally, I hear people saying, "Well, Ter- maybe Terence Dix should do it." It's like, no, Terence Dix made TV in the 1970s. Um, I'm not sure that making TV in the in the in the 2010s is going to be anything like that. But because of the way that Chibnall's built up and got experience I think I'm, 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 I'm an old school person like that you know someone that comes from behind is always a good thing for me you know Tom I going back to the question you had just briefly about should it be should Doctor Who be made by committee or should there be a real strong central showrunner I, hmm. I think and, and it, it's relevant to Chris Chibnall I think that there's somewhere there's a happy medium between that somewhere there's a sense of collaboration where you do have someone that can can help set the vision and set the tone but perhaps with some strong advisory voices. And I think it worked, I, I think it worked real well with Russell T. Davis and Julie Gardner. And in particular, because one of them, Russell, was a lifelong fan of the show and knew it inside and out and, and knew the heart of the show. And one of them, Julie Gardner, was brand new to the show and was seeing it from a general audience's point of view and, and needing to, to grasp what, the, what all this was about. I could see someone like Chris Chibnall, uh, who who I agree, uh, I agree a bit with Stephen that his stories haven't been classics necessarily, although I think most of them have been solid. Uh, maybe you get someone like that who who gets the heart of the show and pair them or t- put them with a team of other people who, uh, you know, help uh, smooth the rough edges and make something be- beautiful. So there's a binary, there's a balance going on, there's a, and there's a discussion between two people between two people who have very different perspectives on the show. Yeah, either um, either two people or a small team. So I've said not to Neil Gaiman. Michelle, you said Chris Chibnall. Uh, Stephen, what are you thinking? I would like to see, and this is never going to happen at this point, but um, I think I'd like to see Toby Whithouse. Uh, you know, I think he has been, uh, I, I love being human. Um, I think it was a, a fantastic show um, from beginning to end. Um, so he and and that was completely his vision and I like his approach and and uh, he he wrote most of it uh, and I've liked his episodes that he's written for Doctor Who, um, even Vampires in Venice, which I know a lot of people seem to to not like, um, but I thought God Complex was uh, was fantastic. So. Um, yeah, I'd like to see Toby Whithouse. I would. Uh, I think that's an interesting choice, Stephen. And I also enjoyed Vampires of Venice. I don't have the problems with it. A lot of fandom seems to. And and he wrote School Reunion, which was a beautiful and moving and powerful reintroduction for Sarah Jane. You know, again, another controversial choice. But A Town Called Mercy is another one of my favorites from from this recent series. So uh, I uh, emotionally, I kind of would be there with you. And and as you say, he he created 
being human, and so he's got some uh, some good strong background there in terms of experience. Toby Whithouse, hmm, not sure, not sure. He strikes me as being what? Hmm. I have to be careful how I put this because I know people listen to this show. Um, there is a certain type of aspect in media, the funky shirt, Barry Cryer glasses people, and I'm just not sure about Toby Whithouse. He does some things well, but that's not the same as saying he could run the show. I'm not sure. Maybe but maybe he's maybe he's a Barry Letts type person though. Actor, writer, showrunner. Well, okay, uh, uh, but again, maybe it's that because, because the God Complex, okay, A Town Called Mercy, Vampires of Venice and School Reunion. What joins these three things together? Good writing, strong characters, lots of running around. Is that what makes good Doctor Who? Is there a vision on the back end of it? Don't know. I've uh, and I'm and this and and I know that for me maybe it's a little bit personal. I've had um, a couple of extensive conversations about Doctor Who with Toby Whithouse, and uh, okay. he just loves doing the show, loves writing for the show. Um, Is that enough? Is that enough? Um, I, I don't know. I don't know. But but like you said, those three those three points about um, you know about what made those episodes good. I think I think is quite a goes goes a long way. But maybe this is the thing. What, what maybe what we, what you're looking for? Okay, so in Russell T Davis, you've got a, you've got someone who has a proven track record of making must see TV. Um, with Stephen Moffat, you've got someone with a proven track record of making must see TV. And the thing that you're both that you're both mentioning. Uh, with, the, with with the uh, with the three people that we've talked about so far, is this phrase "lifelong Doctor Who fan," and it seems interesting to me that the the, the lead actor and the showrunners of late have this credential that they've been lifelong Doctor Who fans. Um, is that necessarily a good thing? I said, like I said, I think it needs to be balanced. I, I, I like mm. I like that it's there. I want someone who understands and will honor the past of the show while taking it forward into the future. But I, I do think it needs to be balanced with people who maybe aren't as close and can look at things with a more objective eye. I agree, because I, I, I don't think being a fan is enough. I think it's somebody who actually understands how to make a television show. And, and as, as I said, I, I loved being human, and that's, that's another aspect of, of Whithouse that I like. But see, I, you know, I, I, and one name that comes up often that uh, of someone who's a lifelong fan who I wouldn't want to see run the show is Nick Briggs. Nick Briggs is, is, you know, looking at just the complexity of what it takes to run a TV show. Uh, Nick Briggs doesn't have that experience yet. He hasn't done that kind of work, writing for TV, producing TV, executive producing TV. Mm. So there's there's still a career path that, that where the, the things need to, to fill in. But he, all those other things we talked about at the beginning about what makes a great showrunner, he has done as an exceptional showrunner, if you will, as, a, as a, an executive producer at Big Finish. Everything yeah. from many of the most compelling scripts that, that you get out of Big Finish or Nicholas Briggs scripts, I think he gets the heart of the character of the Doctor like almost nobody else does and, and can write the Doctor phenomenally well. He also has the uh, organizational skills, the ability to, to keep a gazillion balls in the air at once and to keep things running and, and, and on time, to work collaboratively with a, a team of, of experts and to surround himself with some of the most talented writers uh, that I've ever experienced. I would love someday to see the skills that he has developed at Big Finish transition into into the show. Although, uh, selfish me, I'm not sure I'm willing to let him go for all those years in between to go, you know, <laughs> learn learn the trade in other shows. What do you think, Tom? Um, I... 
I'm coming back to you. I'm coming back to the idea of hypermedia. Doctor Who doesn't exist in one space anymore like it used to. Um, Nick Briggs, I think, was raised on the diet of Tom Baker and visual Doctor Who, which would, and, and this shows absolutely in his work because it's, it's, be, it's as you say, it's it's more often than not beautifully conceived, and the complexity of working in audio um, is very different to the complexity of working in TV. Um, my understanding of it, and a brief exposure, is that it's a, it's a smaller team, shorter turnaround. Um, and smaller budgets. Now mm. that's uh, and in, and inside that particular uh, that particular media, he's king. He's fantastic. Um, I think you're right. He, he can also write the Doctor very well. Um, in t- I'm thinking of um, the light at the end recently, <laughs> uh, which is particularly good. I mean, don't get me wrong. A, a, a good fifty percent of that is the performances. It's not just the words. It's also the performers too. And the, the Doctor actors just kick it out of the park. They're great, particularly Tom Baker. Hooray! Um, but I'm not. Sure, I've never met Nick Briggs. He seems like a nice man when I hear him interviewed, and I'm a big fan of his work. But I'm not sure that you could make the jump from audio to TV quite so quickly. He's worked in TV because he does he, he does the Daleks on the TV show. But I'm not I've, I've, Michelle. I, my, my my concern is where with like you. Where's the experience? Because it, he he's clearly a he's clearly a fan of the show. But I know people who are fans of of, of medical TV shows, and I'm not sure I'd want them to operate. <laughs> Well, and, and, you know, I, I absolutely acknowledge that. He he does not have the, the television experience at this point, and it would take years to get it. So we'd, we'd be looking. Maybe he'll be the, the man that brings Doctor Who back after the next hiatus. But but while <clears throat> while we're on the subject of Nicholas Briggs, this is a good chance for us to take a short interval or intermission, depending on what side of the pond you are, and <laughs> uh, give us a chance to listen to the latest couple of reviews that Ian and I did uh, from Big Finish, uh, which just might happen to feature a Nick Briggs play. Big finish with Ian and Michelle from across the Atlantic Ocean. Ian from the UK and Michelle from the United States. Reviewing Big Finish, sorting out the wheat from the chump for nonsense, saving you money on the ones that are not so good. This week we're looking at Seasons of Fear and Embrace the Darkness. In Seasons of Fear, the Doctor and Charlie arrive in Singapore looking for an old friend of Charlie's. But they meet someone who claims to not only have met the Doctor before, but to have killed him. I have waited through the generations for this meeting, so I can finally look you in the eye. Finally allow myself to feel the satisfaction of your death. My death? What have you done? Only now do you begin to feel the bite of it. I have killed you, Doctor. Seasons of Fear has a great opener in the sense of this human who is evidently immortal uh, and says that he has already killed the doctor but didn't have a chance to gloat over him, uh, which which sets the doctor and Charlie off on a, on a journey back through time, of course, to, to stop this from happening. And this is set in uh, three or four different time periods as they encounter this uh, person. Sebastian Grail is the, is the name of the, the villain in this and work to thwart his plans. But uh, there also is a, a returning monster in this that you don't really get a reveal of until the fourth part. And uh, I enjoyed that and kind of was down on myself for not catching the clues. Listeners, if you go back and listen to this one, pay attention to the clues throughout and see if you can figure out the monster before it's revealed. I found it a little bit difficult to follow, and I'm still not quite clear on all the plot points and why things work the way they did. But in general, I found it an enjoyable listen. The theme on this was quite familiar. It's one of those timey-wimey stories where they're going through a story in a different order to some of the other characters. I thought that the different time periods that they go to are quite well realised. They start off in Roman Britain, and I actually found this to be quite a gritty, realistic and fun take on Roman life. 
Although there is a bit where they start talking about following different religions, it did start sounding a little bit Life of Brian. Then when they get to the court of Edward the Confessor, I just loved the realisation of the Edward and Edith characters. I thought that the way they were portrayed and their scheming machinations was really interesting. I agree. I think that that was one of the strongest episodes. Um, You know, it's interesting you bring up the religion thing. This was written uh, by husband and wife team Paul Cornell and Caroline Simcox. And Caroline has gone on to become an ordained priest in the Anglican Church. Uh, And so it's interesting when you see the things that she's written for Big Finish, they're often do seem to be these these themes of exploring uh, religion or religious history. And I did like the progression from the Roman times and, you know, a priest of Mithras uh, and moving on into Christian times. Uh, you know, maybe there was a little bit too much exploration of that, but it worked well in the context of the development of Sebastian Grail and who he was as a character. And, of course, then we revisited your favourite part of Big Finish canon with another trip to the Hellfire Club. <laughs> Fortunately, it was a very, very brief trip, almost a hand wave to uh, to what it was like and... Um, Nothing anywhere near approaching the uh, the ordeal that we went through in Minuet and Hell, so <laughs> we'll let it pass this time. I like the plot of this. The thing I found to be the biggest problem was Stephen Perrin's performance as Sebastian Grail. I found him throughout to be strangely lacking in emotion and character. He almost sounded like a continuity announcer on TV, and as he was the major foe linking through the whole story, I felt that robbed the story of quite a bit of its feel. It's interesting that you that you bring that up because I really hadn't thought about it. But you are right in the sense that he didn't make a huge impression on me, other than the plot itself. It was it was the plot device of you know the claim to have already killed the doctor that was intriguing more than the performance. And so I I, I don't think I can disagree with you, but it certainly didn't bother me to the extent that you're describing. Are you prepared, sir? I expect so. We will stand back to back. Then we will march forward ten paces to the beat of the drum. On the tenth pace, we turn and move to the attack. Do you accept these rules? Is it too late to suggest a round of bridge? Raise your sword, sir, and begin your last walk. The other thing I thought was interesting is that there's various plot strands being laid down in this story which are obviously going to be picked up in the future. But I like the fact that you don't necessarily need to be following the arc to enjoy the story. Yeah, there are actually a few things that are are foreshadowed and and almost seem out of place here that will pay off as we go further into Series 2 with with McGann. Speaking of going further, why don't we move ahead into the next story that we're reviewing, which is Embrace the Darkness. In this one, Charlie and the Doctor go forward in time to explore the mystery of a disappearing sun. So in this story, the Doctor and Charlie travel to this system that has lost its sun to investigate the mystery, and they find themselves on board a rescue ship which has been dispatched to find out why a scientific team sent to the planet has lost contact. This was something of a surprise to me, as I've never really heard of this story. It has no particular reputation that I was aware of, unlike, say, Chimes of Midnight or Sword of Orion, which are well-known fan favourites. But I hadn't heard of this, and it kind of came out of left field. But I thought it was an amazing story. It's so creepy, menacing and scary. And the atmosphere it set up right from the get-go really gripped me. And I was amazed that I've not heard more about this story. 
Emergency transmit. Emergency transmit. Where the hell are you? Got it. Go on, let her go before the last drop of juice disappears. Mayday, mayday, mayday. Recognition code 2307-0016-00100. Cimeria 4 base. Loss of power. No oh light. God. Structural damage. Come quickly. Help us. We're in the dark. Oh Help us. Her. Help us. What is it? There's something in here with us. Please. No. I'm glad to hear you say that. I feel exactly the same way. I knew nothing about this going into it, and I loved it. In fact, I would say this is one of my all-time favorites. You start with the survey team down on this planet, and they have an exceptionally traumatic experience that then runs through the rest of the story. And it was one of the most affecting sequences I have ever heard in Big Finish in terms of being scary and just sucking you in. I love the characters. There there are three characters on this survey crew that you follow through the, the whole story. And they have this wonderful camaraderie that they start with. And then after this experience, they're each, you know, dealing with the scars of that. But great characters. There's there's an artificial intelligence robot kind of thing on this uh, rescue ship that I also found a whole lot of fun. The ROSM, the Rescue Operational Security Module. I love that character. You get a lot of computer characters in Doctor Who stories, and they tend to be either Cybermen-type characters who don't always make a lot of sense as computers, or else they're sort of these bland machines that don't really add anything. But this had a real character to it. It behaved in a logical and controlling manner, and actually I felt was quite realistic. At the same time, the Doctor talks logical rings around it and convinces it to help him, but he never really gets the better of it. This computer is smart enough to come back and outmaneuver him again, and there's a real back and forth between them that was just a fascinating and enjoyable relationship to listen to. Your obvious attempt to distract my attention has failed. What do you mean? You clearly do not appreciate that my program core drives all roving assault units aboard this ship. Ah, you mean there's more than one of you? I am one. My parts are many. Neatly put. Lifeform Charlie has been located and will now be terminated. No, I have further information. All information has been assessed. Action must be taken. What kind of artificial intelligence are you if you're not interested in further information? What information? Suspend your termination order and I'll tell you. Suspended? What information? The Doctor's a lot of fun in this, as, as is Charlie. I've really been struck, going back to some of these early seasons of, of the McGann Doctor, at just how enjoyable it is to listen to the Doctor. This is back when he still had his uh, joy of exploration and was fairly lighthearted and whimsical and having a fantastic time with his best friend Charlie. And you just enjoy being with these characters, even as they face difficulties, Um it's a fun ride. This is this is Doctor Who at its best, joining them on their adventures. I would agree. This is definitely one of the best big finishes I've listened to. Um, if I had to pick a couple of downsides, it is genuinely scary and horrifying. This is not something I'd let Alex listen to because there are some really horrific moments within it and I think it would be quite affecting to small kids. Um, I was also a touch disappointed that the second and third cliffhangers were just a bit weak, given the strength of the atmosphere and story around them. Saying that, the first cliffhanger is probably one of the most shocking I've ever heard on Big Finish, so it kind of balances out. 
It, it was absolutely extraordinary. And, and it's funny, I hadn't looked at a cast list or, or who had written this until just before we recorded. And when I looked up who the writer and director was, guess who? Would it by any chance be Nicholas Briggs? It sure would be. And, and I should have known that all along. It's, it's another example of just how well he gets Doctor Who, how well he gets character, how well he gets plot. And yeah, I think that that first episode cliffhanger will, will, will haunt me for all of my Doctor Who listening days. We also have a bit more art plot here. But as with Seasons of Fear, it doesn't in any way affect your enjoyment. And actually, I found this to be an incredibly self-contained story that you could give to someone who hasn't listened to any Big Finish before or since, and they could enjoy it for what it is. If you're looking for a place to try Big Finish out for the first time, this one is strongly recommended. One of my all-time favorites. How interesting. So we have a bit of a binary contrast there in terms of a play not so well received and one which is, well, not, I'm not so much quoting, but the best thing in Big Finish today, which, <laughs> which is quite lovely. Um, it, it, it is interesting to see the renaissance of Paul McGann because he is such a good doctor. I love him on audio. I've got to say, I'm not necessarily a fan of Charlie Pollard. India Fish is a very mm. nice person, um, but Charlie Pollard... Yeah. See, the thing is, Charlie Pollard's all right, but I've heard Lucy Miller. Mm. See, and as soon as you've heard Lucy, and, and, and as soon as you've heard Lucy Miller, that's it. All bets, all bets are off. So then, there's one name that we've not mentioned who I think is has to be part of any discussion about this, rightly or wrongly. Oh, oh really? Is there, is there somebody else out there that people talk about in relation to this? Uh, yeah, there is. There is. <laughs> there is. Um, you're absolutely right. Um, the, the idea is that Peter Davison should be given the role because yeah. you know he's, okay. he's been on, he's been in front of the cameras. Well, look, look at what he did with look at what he did with the five-ish doctors. He's obviously a shoe in. <laughs> you know, he could. I can think of worse place. I can think of worse people to do that to do that role. I can also think of better. Um, one of them might be Mark Gatiss. Now, I've got to say, all the stuff he's written. Um, and my, my particular favorite, my two favorites being Victory of the Daleks and Cold War. Um, and I've, and yes, those long-term listeners to the show will know. I when I first saw Victory of the Daleks, it was like, what is this? Have I got too old for Doctor Who? I don't like it. It's no, it's not for me anymore. But time has told the tale. And Victory of the Daleks, phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. Um, this is how good Doctor Who can be when it's written by a fan. Because okay, yes, it's Power of the Daleks, and maybe one day in the near future we might see Power of the Daleks back again. Who knows? Um, but. It's great. It's brilliant. This is a man who knows Doctor Who, knows TV, knows how to pace things, knows comedy, knows drama, knows how to press those buttons. Um, and Cold War, the return of the Ice Warriors, that could have gone so badly wrong. It could have gone so badly wrong. It's now it's, it's also a cl- it's also very clear to me that Gators is a fan of the Second Doctor because the, all all the time he turns out are Second Doctor stories. The only thing is to be, uh, to be a writer is one thing. To be a producer is another. To be a script editor another thing again. Um, I, I'm a huge fan of his writing, but I'm not sure that the whole skill set is there. I mean, I, I know people who have met him. He talk he talk about him in glowing terms, and I, I, and these are people I, I I know, love, and respect. So I so I, so I I can only go along with what they're saying. But again, 
uh, is the whole skill set there? You know, he certainly has experience, and I like the fact that he has experience in multiple disciplines. I mean, as you say, he, he's an author. He has done producing and other things. He's been the executive producer. Uh, Adventures in Space and Time was glorious, and, and I think a, a, you know, a jewel in his crown, if you will. Uh, and, of course, his work on Sherlock is, is amazing. But he's also got his background as an actor. I, I think someone mm. who has done the craft will have a unique perspective on how to write best for actors and for drama. He's been a playwright as well, and that holds a lot of uh, value in, in, in my eyes in terms of, I just think, learning your craft in the theater or being able to work in that realm also gives you some perhaps some special knowledge about how to, to write drama. Um, and he's got the comic end of it too, so he seems pretty well-rounded. When it comes to his episodes of, of Doctor Who, for me, they've been good. They haven't necessarily been my favorites, but mm. I, I still have a fair amount of confidence in him. Okay, well, here's a question then. Is it that, okay, so you've mentioned his, his extensive, um, his broad experience, um, and it's all very varied. Is being in, Would being involved in a show like Doctor Who for the amount of time it actually requires someone to concentrate be too too much for him? Might it be that it's, it just he doesn't want to be get he doesn't want to get tied down? Oh, it's interesting because you bring up a point. It, one of the things I would love to see in the next showrunner or in any showrunner is someone who's willing to really focus on Doctor Who uh, and make that a, a top priority and. Um, I, the show is so big and so varied and so complex that I think it takes someone to do that. And I think whoever takes the role just uh, or take, takes the job just needs to do that, needs to commit to that. Okay, my life, my life 24-7 is going to be taken over by this job and this show for, for the duration. But hang on, though. I'm not sure. That, okay, so I, okay, so here's the thing, then. Um, put it on the table. Stephen Moffat does Sherlock. Stephen Moffat does Doctor Who. I'm not sure Doctor Who suffered for that. I'm not. Con- I'm not convinced it didn't. <laughs> I'm not sure that it did either. I don't. I don't. I don't think that it's. I, uh, everyone seems to think that the that the reasons in the delay in the split series was because of Sherlock, but I honestly don't believe that was the case. I believe that Stephen Moffat's grand plan, which we're seeing happen, was to get Doctor Who back on television in the fall, uh, and for for the for the uh, darker days, and uh, and, and that's a, that's what we're seeing happen i don't think it had anything to do with sherlock moffat is just notorious is known for being notoriously late with scripts um and that's that's uh that comes part and parcel with him being a writer on the show and that's it so i really don't think it had it was it was sherlock's fault well i I feel like in the second half of season seven there were some things a little shaky and I tell you what whether it's him doing the script or other people the sooner you get the script in the more time you have to to, to tweak where you need to tweak and make it wonderful, um, I and I don't know was that because Sherlock <clears throat> was uh, on the on the boards as well or not? I, I honestly don't know, but I feel like some of what we saw in this last season, particularly the second half of the season, might have been a bit more polished. Had the scripts been earlier? Mm, maybe, I, but like I say, I don't know about all of the scripts and how long it took. But um, I, I just feel like somewhere there was a quality control that was missing. Well, it's, it's that kind of conjecture. I mean, I'm not going to put it. Um, Doctor Who is, has never, well, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm happy to be corrected. But I'm not aware of a single season of Doctor Who that is just, which is just 
win all the way through every it, if it was if it was an album every cut on this album's a hit uh, i'm not sure that's true any of any season of doctor who though you know people's mileage varies um i think as it happens in the modern day in this very new and very different and very pervasive show um that when things aren't all when it's not all at a level of being absolutely massive and, and brilliant all the way through because performances maybe lack or scripts maybe lack that it could be the, the, the first thing we turn to is oh because he's doing so many other things well that wasn't true in the 70s that wasn't true in the 60s it wasn't true in the 80s some of those some you know, some parts of seasons were absolutely diabolical and everyone was just concentrating on doctor who um so i, I i'm not sh- i i understand the argument or at least i believe i can i believe i understand it but I'm not sure it's the right one. Here is a man who can make TV, who can make really good TV, and he's not on his own doing it. It's it's, it's not as if he's got as if he's like locked in a basement just doing the whole thing on his own. He's, he he has got a team. Um, one of the things that you mentioned right at the very beginning of the show was the ability to represent the show and be an ambassador for it. And Stephen Moffat can do that because he knows what to say and knows what not to say. He knows he knows what to imply and he knows how to lead fans on because he's been a fan himself. Um, and the old truth is, of course, if you go to the wrong place on the internet, or you go if you go to the right place on the internet, um, I would say that um, Gallifrey Base is one of the right places. But if you go to the wrong place in that right place, then you can find all the all these strange, foolish ideas about what what Moffat must do, what Moffat, Moffat mustn't do, and everyone's entitled to their opinion. But I'm just not convinced that. The odd duff episode in the season is down to him writing another award-winning show. <laughs> you know, I, I, I have to agree. I don't think, I mean, I don't know a single television show that's bang on every single episode. And especially no. a show like Doctor Who, because um, every episode is, at least the way Stephen Moffat tries to make it, is, is like a mini epic movie. And, and of course, it's, it's going to be different. It's telling a different story. It has a different theme, a different setting. Uh, you know, what's, what's amazing about Doctor Who is that it can be a completely different show from week to week. And sometimes that's going to work for, for people, and sometimes that's not going to work for people. Me personally, I pretty much enjoy it every single week. So I think, uh, I think it's, it's crazy when, you know, that, that people get so concerned that the show is going down the tubes. Cause I, I think that there are ebbs and flows, but I do think what's really clear about this entire conversation is that unlike when, uh, Russell T Davies was leaving and we were all so just excited that, uh, Stephen Moffat was taking over. I don't think that there is a one single clear person who um, has everything that's necessary to be uh, to be the, the to be the showrunner at this point. I think Stephen Moffat really was the obvious and perfect choice when when um, when when Davies was leaving. I mean, his all of his episodes were solid. He had all of the skills, all of the background, um, and and he was just he just fit the role perfectly. And I just don't think that uh, that that any any of the people that we mentioned really uh, fit that bill yet. Well. It's funny that you mentioned that. We had a nice bit of feedback from a listener named Tom. No, not the Tom that's in the camper van at the moment, but another li- another listener named Tom. Uh, and and Stephen, I think you have that, don't you? I do. Um, let me let me read that to you right now. Thanks for the great work, but personally, I do not want Moffat to go anytime soon, as he is a brilliant executive producer. But I would like him to co-executive produce the show with Mark Gatiss. They clearly get along well, and as Sherlock was the reason for the delay in Series Seven, it would be nice for them to spread the work out more between them. It may seem that fan opinion of his stories are mixed, but personally, they are getting better and better. And his recently re-released third Doctor novel, Last of the Gatherine, 
I hope I got that right, uh, makes me wish for him to write for Unit and build up a modern-day Unit family, which Moffat has started with the brilliant creation of Kate Stewart. So in summary, a collaboration of the two as executive producers of Doctor Who would, in my opinion, be mutually beneficial for both the fans who want more Doctor Who and for the show itself. That's, a, it's, that's an interesting idea, but that's, that, I think that maybe that's to go back to what you were championing earlier, Michelle, a binary mm. um, to, to have these two people in there. Um, I, I do want to say, actually, that perhaps... Uh, well, no, not in reality. In reality, these are great. These are great, very talented people. Um, but I think part the real triumph is that what Russell T Davies and Stephen Moffat have both done mm-hmm. is raised our expectations of what Doctor Who is and can be. That's the real. I think that's that's the real triumph there. Yes, there's a couple of uh, there might be a couple of slightly duff episodes, but even it's that thing Doctor Who fans say, isn't it? Even bad Doctor Who's better than than good anything else. Um, but what they've really done is raised the expectations and expanded the boundaries and horizons of what this show can be. Um, and I guess the, what, what, we're, what we're all hoping for is someone that can continue to do that. Doctor Who's the weirdest job in the world. It's like the lead actor joins, and the question is, when are you leaving? And when they <laughs> leave, it's like, why don't you, and when they leave, it's like, why don't you stay longer? And it's, 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 it seems to be this. I guess it's the same for, same for the showrunners as well. You know, you, you join up, it's like, oh, when are you leaving? Well, <laughs> just got here. You know, I've still got a load of work to do. But yeah, I think I'm kind of with you. I like the idea of a collaboration, but then again, that's because I'm from the 1970s. I like my old um, Let's and Dicks uh, binaries. That's what it's all good. Yeah. Well, you know, I, it, in in you know, you mentioned new media a few times, and and I mean, I personally believe that the internet was essentially created so that people could complain, um, <laughs> had, had had a public place to complain, and it really is. Uh, it really does end up being a bit of a, a, a thankless job in a lot of ways for, for the reason that you said where you know a, a showrunner joins and people ask when he's leaving and uh, the same as, as the lead actor and uh, I don't blame Moffat for getting off of Twitter um, <laughs> at this point because uh, it is it, it's a job that I wouldn't want. No, it's, it's, it's an extraordinary job. It's amazing that anybody survives it. I bet it's one of those jobs that prematurely ages you <laughs> as you go through it. Um, boy, we ask so much of whoever the person is that, that, that does that. Amazing yeah, stuff. Entitlement, lots of entitlement in Doctor Who fans. But that's, a, that's another story for another day. Are we done? I believe we are. I think, wow. <laughs> <laughs> there are other names out there that people float, but I think that we have had about as many as we can handle in the camper van for one sitting. Uh, but I'm sure it'll be all over the Doctor Who podcast forums. So uh, listeners, go on there and tell us why we're wrong um, mm-hmm. and tell us who you think should be the showrunner. And I'm not taking nominations. I don't I don't want to do the job as I've announced. <laughs> hey, it's been great to talk with both of you guys. Um, yes, it's been fun. It's nice it's it's nice to be here. There's there's only a certain amount of energy that can come from the Capitol though, so now I have to go back into my pile of books. Talk to you next time, Stephen. Bye Michelle. Bye Tom. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Doctor Who Podcast, brought to you this week by Michelle, Stephen, and Tom. You can find more episodes of the show at thedoctorwhopodcast.com or check us out on Facebook, Twitter or drop by the Doctor Who Podcast forums and say hi. Thanks for listening. See you later.